So without further ado, though, it is my great pleasure, thanks, to introduce our closing keynote speaker today, Dr. Heather Hackman. I paused so you could get that clap. <laughs> Uh, so this past year, I actually had the opportunity to participate in a full-day institute with, with Dr. Hackman uh, the day before the White Privilege Conference in Kansas City. And for me, that experience was transformative and really, really powerful. And that's why I'm so excited that all of you will be able to have the opportunity to hear from her this afternoon. Um, so a little bit about Dr. Hackman that she's been teaching and training on social justice issues since 1992. Uh, she was a professor in the Department of Human Relations and Multicultural Education at St. Cloud University in St. Cloud, uh, Minnesota for 12 years before she began focusing full-time on consulting and training. She has taught courses in social justice, multicultural education, race and racism, heterosexism and homophobia, social, education, social justice education, oppression and social change, sexism and gender oppression, class oppression, and Jewish oppression. She received her doctorate in social justice education from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst in 2000 and has taught at many institutions around the country. In 2005, she founded the Hackman Consulting Group and consults nationally on issues of deep diversity, equity, and social justice, and has focused most of her recent training on, on, and work on issues of racism and white privilege gender oppression, heterosexism and homophobia, and classism. She has published in the area of social justice education theory and practice, racism and healthcare, and is currently working on a book examining the issue of race, racism, and whiteness in education through a model that she calls cellular wisdom. She has served on numerous boards and committees uh, committed to multicultural and social justice work, and since 2012 has served as a member of the advisory council for the White Privilege Conference. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Heather Hackman. Hello. I'm so delighted to be here. Um, I want to thank the YWCA for just tireless work, right? Absolutely tireless work. Um, in the name not just of racial justice, but gender justice, queer justice, economic justice, uh, because most of my experiences with YWCA, YWCA work across the country has been deep intersectionality and a real understanding that you, there's no way to talk about race, racism, and whiteness without talking about other issues as well. And so I'm just so grateful for the work they do. So one more appreciation for them, for sure. And while... Oh, drat. Uh, well, let's make it really loud because maybe it'll carry through the wall. But I also want to thank the, um, the staff of the convention center who brought us our lunch and who were so wonderful and appreciative and patient. And I said, vegetarian, please. And they were like, bam, got it. You know, and so let's please loudly appreciate their work and service. Um, and so I just have to say, I'm not, I, I'm just, I'm so sorry. I'm not feeling well today. I'm not feeling 100%. And so my energy is going to be kind of low, 
which is a bummer because so is yours. You just ate a bunch of carbs. And so we're, I'm desperate for a nap and go to bed right now. And in five minutes, you will be too. And so it's going to be tough. But I will have moments where you're going to chit-chat with each other and touch base because truly uh, there's no way I'm going to talk for an hour. I get bored listening to myself. You will be bored listening to me or anybody talk for a whole hour. Um, but more importantly, it's you have to engage with each other. As you've been talking about throughout this entire day and a half, two days, it's critical to engage. And so um, so I apologize for my low energy level um, during this chit-chat, but you will be able to make up your own energy level by chatting with each other. Um, and given the – also, I'm a horrible keynoter because I go way off script, way off script. Um, and I was like, and then I was six, and this amazing thing happened. And you'll know – wait, wait, it's a short story. And then – but I've been watching for the last several months what happens when you go off the teleprompter, and so I'm going to be super careful – I'm going to be very careful and try to stick to my teleprompter for sure. So uh, given the nature of this bizarre and truly painful and dangerous national moment, I also want to honor spaces like these where people do three key things, connect, share learning, and imagine something else. In this national context, these kinds of spaces become much more important. And so I was listening to some of my friends chat over lunch and and I think if we are actually in our organizations going to truly commit to doing racial justice work, then we actually have to commit to this space and time. You can't add it as something you are now going to do in your work, but then change nothing about your daily schedule, change nothing about your workload, change nothing about the institutional and structural ways that you're operating. That makes zero sense. It makes zero sense. And so for those of us who are hopefully committed to this, one of the key things you can take out of this, if you can just go do that this afternoon, if you're heading back to whatever space you're in, um, is to say, what, do, what can we carve out? What can we shift? What can we change such that the time commitment and the relational opportunity for racial justice is a constant? How do we make that normative instead of annual? How do you make it normative instead of just two days a year? And so these kinds of spaces are not to be the exception. They are to be the hallmark of the norm. This is what we should be doing with each other all the time, preferably over fantastic food, right? And so we chat, we engage, and we share, and we become part of a process, and we try to live a racially just life. Um, and I just have to say, too, it's, a, it's been a difficult week for me, for sure. Um, I grew up in Las Vegas, and so uh, my family's still there. My mom is in Santa Fe, but my brothers and their families are still there. My brother Andrew is a musician, and while he was not at that event, uh, three of his close friends have been killed, and a fourth one was shot three times and is in the hospital right now. And so, um, yeah, so I, you know, Part of me is also not here, not just because I'm not feeling well, but because I want to actually be somewhere else, to tell you the truth. Um, and I've never really felt um, like, yay, Vegas was the most family-centered social justice place in the world. Um, so uh, I've never had a deep affinity uh, for uh, some of the things, the happenings of Las Vegas. But I certainly have a deep affinity for the human beings that have been caught literally in the crossfire. Um, and for my brother... Uh, who has not faced this kind of loss before and doesn't quite know what to do about it, doesn't quite know what to do about it. Um, and there are countless families in this country who have faced that loss, right? And so how do we come together um, and, and have a different conversation? And so, again, 
all the more reason to have spaces like this because spaces that are committed to justice and acknowledge the connections between this nation's gun laws, powerful corporate interests, systems of racial oppression, oppression, the prison industrial complex, the deeply gendered nature of this kind of violence, our current political and economic structures, and how we educate and support our communities in so many other issues. If we're going to understand how these type of tragedies happen, we have to be able to find comprehensive and effective ways to respond to these moments, not just, you know, quick fixes. There are no quick fixes. We, uh, our organization gets called into um, companies and nonprofits and, and educational spaces, and they're like, what are the seven steps to racial justice, and can you get it to us in 45 minutes? You know, and it's like, that's phenomenal in a whole bunch of ways. Number one, if there were seven steps, do you think we wouldn't have done it by now? Like, have we just been waiting for you to ask for them? Like, as soon as Bob asks us for it, then we're ready. You know, so first of all, there's no seven steps. But second of all, um, even if there were, I wouldn't give them to you. There's not a chance in the world I would give you those because if we don't develop and live into a commitment to racial justice as a human community, then we won't be able to survive or navigate or negotiate those very difficult moments. So I have a lot of teachers who want curricula, but they have not developed or, or uh, they don't proffer a deep critical racial justice lens, and so they wouldn't even be able to do it if I did give it to them. And so this is less about what's the perfect steps this is less about the perfect steps, and it's far more about fundamental change for who we are as human beings. And so that's kind of what I'm here to talk about. I'm here to close this event um, about, you know, and talk about living a racially just life. And, and so some of the things I want to touch on are about whiteness and dismantling the system of race, racism, and whiteness. I'm going to be talking mostly to white people because that is how I identify. I'm a multi-generational white USer. Um, but that's not to say that people of color and Native people have escaped the insidious effects of white supremacy in their lives as well. And so as we begin to talk about this system of whiteness and deconstructing whiteness and racism and race, there's something obviously in it for everybody. But instead of closing to what I was saying earlier, it's way better for us to frame leaving the conference as really the next step and actualizing what's been shared and experienced. It's so easy to have powerful lessons, you know, like, oh, my gosh, you know, and we're crying, and we're like, oh, and these amazing moments. We're like, I will never be the same. But then by the time you get to Starbucks, you're like, am I going to get a latte or a frappuccino, you know, and you've totally forgotten what just happened. You've totally forgotten that magic moment until a year later you're like, I love this conference. Last year I was a mess, you know, and it's like, we actually have to do a lot more. And so my the, kind of the, the, the vibe or the jam of my talk today is really more about the expectation that we take these days and we weave them into our work. And many, most of you in this room already do that. But there's always more work to be done. There's always a learning edge to be explored. Okay, it's in the hallway. I was like, there's voices in my head, literally voices in my head right now. But it's just chit-chat in the hall. So that's fine. You don't have to stop. Don't even stop. I'm just glad that's not what's going on. It's like, oh, my gosh. That, I would have to take a quick time out and have you chat with each other, which actually is what we're going to do. So I, I want to start uh, our kind of diving in with a ground in. And I know you've been doing this throughout uh, the session. I started doing this about 10 years ago when I was teaching at St. Cloud State. Um, and I would have students come in, and they're like, oh, I hate the grounded, you lefty liberal weirdo. And, and that's what they, they – but they also knew I controlled their grades, so they're like, but I'll do it, you know. And I was like, that's awesome. You do need to do this because I do control your grades. So that's – you're reading this moment perfectly right now. 
So here's what I'm going to ask you to do is just sit with your feet flat if you can. Uh, I rarely get a chair where my feet hit the floor, frankly. So just a little toe action if you need it. Um, Sitting as uh, as upright or comfortable as you're able. And this is definitely a moment where there's... Don't want to be getting into ableism here, and so there is no normal body. There's no one way to be doing this. There is no perfect posture. I started meditating in 2007, um, and my I'd never done it. And I thought, well, why not do a whole day retreat? And so there I was, and everyone was silent, doing their thing, and I was like, you know, because it was a whole silent day, and I rarely have a silent second. And so I'm sitting there, and at some point I just got so frustrated that I opened my eyes and just started competing with everyone else. And so. I was like, well, my posture is better than hers, you know, and so it was white supremacist meditation. It was awesome. It was like, I am the best, and so there I was. So there's no perfect way to do this, but what we're trying to do is support your breathing because we have to ground into the process of breathing, right? And so eyes closed or cast your gaze to a neutral site. So many of us are trauma survivors in this country, and it's really harmful to ask trauma survivors to close their eyes in a public space. So just close your eyes or cast them to a neutral site. The goal is to not be visually distracted and then just breathe as deeply as you're comfortable and able. And, again, that's different for everybody. Uh, Breathing, the mere act of being able to breathe is so often mediated in the United States by race and class. Because only some neighborhoods have incinerators put in them. Only some neighbors have, have toxic sites, uh, dump sites put in them, and other na- neighborhoods don't. And it's mediated by race and class. So even something seemingly as benign as breathing has deep connections to racial justice and economic justice. And I'm going to ask you just for a minute to focus only on the felt sense of air as it comes in and out of your nose. Your mind's going to wander. Totally cool. No big deal. That's what it does. Just notice it and gently bring your attention back. And we're just going to do this for a minute. We're building the muscle of attention. Just build the muscle of attention. One last inhale and exhale, please. Inhale and exhale. And so that was risky after lunch, I know. So just like big inhale, like oxygen to your brain. And and it's important to be mindful and it's important to be present. And I deeply appreciate the emphasis on mindfulness and presence. But we have to be super careful about co-opting and commodifying and cultural imperialism of communities of, uh, around the world who've been doing this. So, you know, what I'm not talking about when I say ground in like $110 Lululemon yoga pants, you know, like, and that's the kind of grounding in we're going to do. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about moments of stillness. Just try to be still. Because if we're going to engage in racial justice work in any kind of meaningful way, we actually have to be present. This current moment is the only place you can act to create change. So it's super helpful to be in it. It's incredibly helpful to be in it. And so before every meeting, before every phone call, before every email, literally take a second to take three deep breaths and ground in. 
If nothing else, it's a time saver because the anger you were about to put in that email and hit send to the whole staff, you might take three deep breaths and just delete it, and that will save you easily 20 minutes of cleanup time, right? And so three deep breaths is worth 20 minutes, 20 minutes. More importantly, it helps us get here because we have to be here if we're going to do racial justice work. You have to be present. And white people are rarely present. If you're a multi-generational white U.S., and by that I mean your family has been white and in this country for a number of generations, that means you have been steeped for a long time in the tea of whiteness. And so time continually trumps relationships. Like, I'm sorry that that's happening for you. I don't have time because i got to get to this meeting on time. Most of the world has relationships trump time. But one of the rigid rules of whiteness is that time is all-knowing. And so we just cleave to time, constantly cleaving to time. And so it's going to be helpful to just be deeply present where we are instead of thinking about the next place we're going or the place we just came from. When we're not present, we make a lot of mistakes. The literature would call that microaggressions. I almost never call it microaggressions because for me as a white person, to describe the experience of racism that a Native person or person of color has as a microaggression is like calling it Diet Coke racism. It's like it's got this kind of implication of it's not that bad. And so instead, I always use the phrase everyday racism because that's really what it is. It's the kind of quiet hum of everyday racism and then the big spike of the event and more everyday racism, another spike of the event. And so when I'm not present, I will make endless mistakes, endless mistakes. And I'll talk more about that later. And lastly, grounding in speaks truth to our connection because we are connected. So there will be a couple other times in our session today when I'm going to ask you to ground in. The second thing to get us going collectively is that if you'll turn to your neighbor and introduce yourself, right, introduce yourself and share a highlight of the conference, but here, kind of focus a little bit. In particular, share why and how that moved you. What was, and, and so this isn't a head, this isn't a head thing. And, and there's a, in the afternoon session, if some of you are going to be there, we'll do some work and, and we'll show a quick video clip. I don't know who the we is. I will show a quick video clip. Um, there'll be a, a video will be shown, and and I'm going to ask you to think about it. And I had a, it's, it moves you a little bit. And I had a white woman say when I asked, you know, how did it feel? She was like, the production values were fantastic. I'm like, that's amazing. It's a, and it's true, but that's not a feeling. How did you feel about it? And she's like, I thought that you know, blah 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 was amazing cinematography. I'm like, that's so great. But like, like get in here, get in here, and. I get why some people can't do that, and so there's, I'm not judging that. You know, we just we lean in as much as we can. But there's a difference between that is too hard for me to actually do versus the, the, what whiteness does, which has me say it doesn't, doesn't even occur to me to share how I feel about something. I'm so used to sharing thoughts and analysis, and you actually want me to share a feeling here, and that's what I'm asking you to do. Why and how did it move you? What got moved? So speak from the heart rather than the head if you can. So we'll just do a handful of minutes very quickly with your neighbor. Introduce, and just one thing that moved you, one thing that moved you.
take one more minute. Take one more minute, please. One more minute. Wrap up your last comments, please. Last comments, please. Pause, please. Pause, please. All right, all right. So take a quick moment just to thank your your cockmate there. Just take a quick moment to say thank you. And so why do we do this? Why do we do this? Uh, and that's because relationships are key to achieving racial justice. And they're in, in kind of um, consistent with the theme of the conference here. They are a metric of living a socially just life, for sure. And I don't mean like, oh, I'm white, I've got five black friends. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the authenticity of relationships, being honest and showing up, showing up, showing up. There's a really important element of racial justice work that is if you have a shared commitment, you have to have a shared risk. And that means you actually have to put your body in that space. And so that's hard, harder to do for perfect strangers sometimes. And it's much easier to do with people we are in relationship with. And um, it is a counter to the isolation and the rugged individualism that whiteness so often holds as the highest standard in this country. And so even if you hate those kinds of things, and sometimes people do, they're just like, I can't stand icebreakers, you know? And that's my Uncle Al, actually. It's my Uncle Al. I love him. Uncle Al lives in Florida half the year, Michigan the other half of the year. He's shrinking, so he's now the same size as me, which is so cool. Um, and he's the most racist, sexist, homophobic Democrat I've ever met in my entire life. And uh, there's only two channels that he watches, MSNBC and Golf Channel, and he yells at both of them. And I, I was like, why are you yelling at the Golf Channel? I mean, like... I don't know. Like, what is there to yell at? That, that wasn't a birdie. You know, like, I, how, what do you yell at the Golf Channel? 
But he does, and so that's awesome. And so, anyway, even if you are my Uncle Al and you hate those kinds of things, just take, for, just take a minute and imagine what our society could be like if we actually made an effort to authentically connect with those around us. What would lines at the coffee shop be like? What would traffic feel like? What would conflict sound like? And so connecting to each other matters because, truthfully, there is not going to be racial justice without relationships. We have to work at connecting in meaningful ways or there will not be a heart human relational infrastructure to support a policy infrastructure. And that means that we have to do the internal work in order to be able to betress and support the external work. And so these two things are important, grounding in and being present and building relationships with each other. And so shooting the breeze at the water cooler, if there ever still is such a thing anymore, that's not a waste of time. That's work. That is part of your job is to build relationships with each other. Take the time to get to know who you are around and with. And so the topic of living our racial justice values, as you can see, that's a huge order. If we ground it and we build relationships, it helps. But in this historic moment, it is really difficult, and I don't claim to do it well. I trip over my whiteness constantly, and so I'm here just to share some thoughts about what supports all of us living a racially just life, but I don't claim to be an expert in it. And so a couple definitions or kind of explanations, if you will. When I say whiteness, what I mean is the relationship between the system of benefits and advantages that white privilege affords and the ideology of white supremacy that justifies and explains it all away and says white people deserve it. Sometimes I'll use the phrase super whitey. I'm just referring to the macro structure because it's a faster phrase than institutional and structured systems of racial oppression or super whitey. Like you can just do it. Look how fast that is. I mean. I'm white, I like to save time. So that saves time. Super white. Gets it right up there. And when I talk about whiteness, I'm always starting with systems that trickle down to the personal level. And so these systems are what are driving our daily interactions. The systems are what are driving whether we act out of the racial narratives or not, whether we engage in systemic and structural racism, whether I expect and act out of entitlement and privilege and supremacy. It's systems that create that, and it's just kind of like a, like a Seattle morning. It's just so dewy in the air. It just sinks on down. When I talk about a racially just life, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm just talking about trying to make some progress. I'm talking about it's more important to be authentic than perform racial justice. It's more important to be relational than it is rugged individual. I'm talking about trying to pay attention to the subtle, nuanced aspects of my daily living rather than the external contributions that I make. Uh, and so living a racially just life is much harder than, on some level than doing racial justice work in our organizations because when I turn the lens back on me and ask, am I living a racially just life, the answer is no. No, I'm not. But do I want to be? Yes, I do. I do. And I'll share more about that in a little bit. So thinking about the ways that whiteness in particular Whiteness, privilege and supremacy, these systems get in the way of trying to live a racially just life where my daily internal choices are starting to match my moral commitment. I've found four elements, or I've been thinking about recently. Found sounds like the act of discovery. And so let's avoid that and instead say, I have stumbled upon four elements that I'm sure other people have been thinking about for a long time. And so those four elements are these. Um, and in a way, I see them as antidotes to some of the most common aspects of whiteness that interfere with racial justice work. And the first is a compass, having a moral compass, which is a direct counter 
to the notions of white supremacy and racism and their corrosive effects on our morality and humanity as a society. The second is a tether, which is really a declaration that not only can we not do this alone, we are, in fact, inextricably bound to one another. So like it or not, agree with it or not, want it or not, we are tied together. And accepting this reality is a powerful challenge to whiteness's notion of rugged individualism. The third is an amend, which serves to kind of supplant the sense of entitlement with something that's much more wholesome and powerful. Entitlement is part and parcel to whiteness. Amends is not something that we have done as a society, but it offers us a means to healing and repairing the damage that's been done. And finally, a vision, which is the rebuttal to any notion this is a zero-sum game or any notion that you're going to reverse racism and this and that. And instead, it offers a view of the world where we can live together. And so let me start with the first one, a compass, a compass. I have asked the television many times, where the are we right now? Like, what is happening? How did we get here? In my mind, I've said it out loud. I've said it in the car. I've said it to national public radio, blah, 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 blah. And I'm not going to try to answer that because, truthfully, I'm up to my eyeballs with pundits analyzing the last 12 months. All I know is this, that it feels as if we are dangerously adrift when it comes to a moral compass. Puerto Rico, St. Louis, DACA, Standing Rock, and all of the ways that racism and white supremacy and white privilege are bearing down in such obvious and overt ways, in such public ways, um, in those areas and more. I just find myself hungry for moral leadership. And this language is dangerous. I absolutely know that. As a queer cisgender woman, institutionalized notions of morality have never been my friend. They have never been my friend. And so I'm not looking for, you know, seven steps from the United States Congress on morality. What I'm asking for is not moralizing. What I want is a true north that has some, to me, key components. So the main piece, number one, is a compass. And here are the subsets of that compass. Subset A, 1A, if you will. If you need to take notes and write this down, 1A, 1A is justice, justice, and I unapologetically expect an end to systems of oppression right now, right now. But more than that, I want an end to any form of exploitation. And more than that, I want an end to the obvious and most subtle forms of violence that so often accompany the construction of whiteness, masculinity, heteronormativity, and other expressions of dominance. I want an end to the violence. And I'm just not just talking about the Las Vegas form of violence. I'm talking about the violence of indifference. I'm talking the violence of impatience, arrogance, coldness, separation, isolation that whiteness inculcates in white USers for its very survival. And that violence is not out here. It's in me. I see it in me all the time. Because if, if you travel, if you happen to travel and you're in airports and you see a lot of white people being impatient, it's never a loving, kind, and generous impatience. Like, hi, my friend, we're about to miss our flight. And that's really okay because I'm deeply enjoying my time in the Minneapolis airport. It's actually a nice airport. The renovations are beautiful. Um, but no, and please come in front of me because I'm not in any hurry. Blah, blah, blah. Like, that's not what white impatience looks like. It's aggressive. It's arms crossed. It's confrontational. It's angry eyeballs. You know, like, and it's all that. And, and the, mag the electromagnetic signature... If you're not a science person, just check out for a minute and look at your voicemail or something. I don't know. But the electromagnetic signature of our central nervous system extends three feet off our bodies. So if you're within six feet of anybody, you're picking up on what science calls their juju, right? Like, that's the scientific term for it. 
And why does that matter? Because young people of color and native people in our public schools, they don't listen to what majority white teachers say. Like 86% of our our public P-12 teachers are white. They pick up on what those white teachers are doing. They read bodies. They read energy. They read facial expressions. All of that. When you look at white people being impatient, that is aggressive and angry and violent and entitled. And how dare you, where's mine? How dare you, where's mine? I owned this seat before you even got here. And the funny thing is, it's not my seat. It's not my seat. And so what I'm talking about is I want a justice that addresses that. And so what that means is that I don't long for just systemic structural justice. I deeply long for liberation. Not a tepid democratic platform, not political platitudes about gradualism, not single-issue socialism. I want something more profound. I want the justice that comes with a commitment to liberation and nothing less. Fully human, healed, connected, restored, and real. And that is, is what, at, what is at the heart of the justice that I seek. It's too big to be placed in a CNN soundbite. It's too bold to be represented by a federal bill. It's too audacious, as was being said yesterday in the keynote, to fit on a protest sign in my front yard. It's too fully human to be posted on Facebook and forbid Twitter, right? I want full liberation, nothing less. I want that to be part of my moral compass and my true north because it is my birthright as it is yours as a human being. And we are one family. And I don't mean that in a, I'm colorblind, I'm just one family. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the Dalai Lama's kind of one family situation where he's like, I've just got one circle. And it's around everybody. Just the one. And, and you might be like, oh, that's a nice sentiment. Until you hear him say, including the Chinese who have tortured us. Then you're like, whoa, man. What? I mean, I wouldn't say that to the Dalai Lama. Whoa, man. I don't think I would say that. I think I would say... Something else that's much more respectful and honorable, but whoa, man, would not be it. But I inside would be like, whoa, man, that is, whoa, whoa. And so what I'm, what, the reason I'm emphasizing that this point of justice in a moral compass is because white liberalism waters down racial justice to the point where it's just so ineffectual, we might as well not even be doing it. And so we, in order to move past white liberalism, we actually have to put a stake in the ground and say, I am going to go for it. This is our moment. Go for it. Go for it. Why not? Like, it, it, this is a really tense national moment. No time to be conservative. Go for it. Just absolutely go for it. The problem with me is that I've noticed in myself, I'll just speak for myself, that my deep desire for justice actually has to be tempered w- with wisdom or it way too quickly and easily turns to self-righteousness, which is the ultimate irony, right? In my desire to end racial oppression, whiteness doubles back, colonizes my passion, turns it into self-righteousness, and thereby continues to center itself in the name of racial justice. You know, I mean, it has been, I've watched it happen. It's amazing. So, or let me say it another way. There's nothing worse than a self-righteous, arrogant, demanding white person making suggestions to people of color and native leadership because I'm pretty sure I know better while angrily calling out other white people in order to prove what a good white person I am and then using the lazy tool of lefty cynicism to demonstrate how superior I am to white supremacists, right? Like the whole package is a problem. And it makes me a real treat to work with. I can tell you that. <laughs> Everyone's like, we want her on our committee. You know, nobody's saying that. Nobody's saying that. But so thankfully, point two, 1B 
is wisdom, right? Wisdom tempers that. Wisdom's rooted in thoughtful questions. It's rooted in history. It's rooted in balance. It's rooted in knowing that the master's tools will never fully dismantle the master's house. Thank you, Audrey Lord. Wisdom seeks allies, but more than that, it seeks partners. Wisdom believes people can change, though perhaps they will choose not to. Wisdom is constantly looking for the opportunity, and for no other reason than just a trust in entropy and the knowledge that all things change, and therefore there's always a chance for good to enter the picture. So moral compass, number one, one C, is that wisdom alone is not enough. It has to be betrayed by love, or justice and wisdom runs the risk of being a heady form of racial justice, which again is prey to whiteness. Let's intellectualize this. Let's think about this. Let's study this more. If I'm the mayor of Hackmanville, I say, well, you know, I, I hear your testimonies, but I really want to see the data, you know, right? Like, I, it's not enough to say a human being is, is struggling. I actually have to see the data in order to make it legitimate. And so without love, I fall into that trap because white people love to think about stuff. And that's not wrong, but I get a little pinky in the brain type of head, like, you know, and I just can't move because my head's so big. It's so big. So we need to work on the heart. We need to work on love. One C, love. Last year I took a, I was at a meta retreat for a whole week. Meta is is loving kindness practice. And I told you I'm a horrible meditator. So I was like, I'm going to this week-long thing in uh, in San Rafael, California. And uh, and I had three goals. One is I wanted to listen to Spring Washam talk because I think her Dharma talks just rock, right? Number two is uh, I wanted a week of silence. And so I got it. I got contrary to what you might think right now. I actually do like silence. I really do. And and so cell phones were off. Eddie, it was a whole week of silence. And number three, I was like, well, I'm a horrible meditator, but I bet all the other hundred people are really good. So I'm just going to draft off their goodness. I'm just going to be like, you're so good at what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So that's that's all I wanted to do there. And then one of the nights spring gave a gave a Dharma talk and she said, you know, if you're going to engage in metta, it's really difficult work. We have to do this. And it was in December. It was the first week of December of last year. So there was a lot of emotion in that room, as you can well imagine. And she said, but one of the key pieces is to lean into metta fully. You have to cast no one out of your heart. And the whole room went, oh, you're like, what, Scooby? Like, are you, no one? You know, because we all had an asterisk there. We're like, bloop, 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 you know, and. And I, I love them. Like, I love Ellen, but not that guy. You know, like, oh, no. And she was like, I know. I know, my dear friends. But you cannot cast anyone out of your heart. And I don't claim to be good at that. But I can tell you, for over the last year, I have been given it a try. I've been given it a try. And one D for the moral compass is what I've noticed is that I actually have to have a lot of compassion as I do it. And so the moral compass is justice, it's wisdom, it's love, but it's a lot of compassion because I fail at that don't cast anybody out of your heart almost all the time. And so I need compassion in my moral compass for myself and for other people. Last Friday I went to services with a Jewish friend, and as we recited the Kol Nidre prayer, I realized what a compassionate thing it is to ask for forgiveness and to give it. So a moral compass doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. It means when we do, we own them and we ask and give forgiveness. No one in that space that night was free of harming another, and yet the salve of compassion and the grace it bestows on us all was so enlivening that for a moment I felt as if my heart might actually be able to be as wide as an ocean, that I might be able to extricate the whiteness in my head and my heart, that I might just be able to get to a place where I could hold love for everybody, that I might be able to express the compassion that is required for tikkun olam and the healing and repairing of the world. It was a gorgeous moment. 
And then some guy's cell phone rang two rows behind me, and I turned to glare, right, as did everybody else, because we you're supposed to turn your cell phone off. And so and I was instantly reminded as I made the glaring pivot, right, like, oh, we're, we're praying about compassion. And I'm like, glare, you know, it was, it was such a priceless moment. And I looked at my friend Erica, and we were both like, ah, yep, still human. Ha <laughs> ha. So amazing. So amazing. A couple pieces, and then I'll move to number two. Compassion is not condoning. There's an element of rising above that makes space for both sober accountability and a heart that says, I understand and see you and want to help you not do any more harm in the future. So just because we're compassionate doesn't mean we let stuff slide. And blaming the current occupant of the White House here is too easy. I'm responsible for the flimsy holes in my own moral compass, not him. So rather than spend more energy and time blaming, judging, and criticizing him, I need to spend that energy refining my own moral compass and be the true north that I'm looking for in others so I can engage in racial justice with every fiber of my being. Every bit. So we're just going to take a minute. Feet flat, sit up, eyes closed, breathe deeply. We're just going to ground in. I'm going to ask you to touch into your moral compass, touch into your sense of justice or wisdom or love or compassion. Just take a minute and find it, not the thought of it, but try to find the felt sense of that. You're trying to touch into the felt sense of justice, the felt sense of wisdom, of love, of compassion. We'll just do this together for a minute. Just inhale and exhale. So it takes more to challenge whiteness, white privilege and white supremacy than just reading everything Tim Wise has ever written. That's not bad. That's not bad. But we actually need a compass. We need a compass. The second piece is a tether. We need a tether, or at least to recognize that we are tethered. And one of my favorite phrases that I sometimes hear uh, folks along a political spectrum say is, I was born in the log cabin. I built with my own hands, you know. And if you just wrap your head around that, you'll be like, hold on. You know, like that's, that's not super possible. And I love this phrase. I love this phrase because it so absurdly captures the notion of rugged individualism. And that is one of the hallmarks of whiteness, the notion of individualism, individual success, individual responsibility, individual learning and testing in our schools, even individual houses and cars and lawns, right? Like fence around my lawn, my white lawn, blah, 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 blah. And what I love about, about the dynamics of whiteness and possession and ownership and rugged individualism is that you can be on a block full of kind of middle classes, professional middle class white people, and we will all own the same stuff. We will all sit in the back of our houses, you know, with our individual grills, doing our individual grilling. 
When in reality, what, what we need to do is get in the front of our houses, sit on the stoop a little bit, talk to our neighbors, chit-chat, connect, build relationships. And even for people who are committed to racially just lives, rugged individualism infiltrates our racial justice work through transactional relationships. Let's do this work together toward this goal. Structured organizing, what's the plan? Or breaking bread and organizing or talking is not organizing. Intense ties to time, this meeting needs to start on time. And being passionate and feeling while on the front lines, but then returning to the sterile isolation of a majority of white communities. The very idea, however, of rugged individualism is absolutely absurd. And that doesn't mean I don't think you're an individual person. But I've done everything all by myself. It's just not true. It's just not true. The truth is we are all deeply and inextricably connected. I absolutely love astronomy. I was at the Eclipse in Carbondale. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is so amazing. Ah!" I mean, I just loved it. I I had all the glasses and this and that, and it was great. It was great. And I love astronomy because in a core way it reminds me constantly that we actually all originate from the same stardust, right? So it's 13.8 billion years ago, the big birth, boom, space and hydrogen, hydrogen. But the density is, if you're not into science, check out for a second. Look at it, I'll be right back. And so the density is a little uneven, so hydrogen starts to get clump, and then gravity, and then boom, and start, and then hydrogen, the helium, pressure, pressure, and then other elements, and then boom, they blow up, and they're like, bleh, everything everywhere. And then you wait for supernovas to get the really heavy. Heavy elements, and then four and a half billion years ago, stuff started swirling around, and the sun was like, I'm the sun, and then other planets were like, wait for us, you know, and so then they did their thing, and then, and here we are, right, and so, I love it, I love it, I love that, I love that, because it reminds me in some big, that's a big picture, it reminds me in a big picture way, is that I, I, am, I am you, and you are me. And so the idea of race is absolutely anathema to our humanity. It's a fiction used to divide us and justify just such wide-ranging atrocities of racism and white supremacy, but it's all a lie. Not just because sociologists say it or some lefty liberals say it, but because the entire voice of the natural world says it's not true. From this view, though, whiteness is indicative of a truly diseased collective consciousness that has forgotten who it is and who we are. And I say disease not in an ableist way. I say disease because if we are all connected and we are all one, but racism, whiteness, rugged individualism, white supremacy separate me from others. And that means I am essentially split from myself. And in this disconnected and dissociated state, white people not only enact horrible oppression to Native people and people of color, in the end, we all die. A dissociated, disconnected state, I will in the end die because I have separated myself from the source of life, you. And when I do that, my death is certain. So if I'm trying to live a racially just life, I need to expunge the I over the we and instead move from the I to the we. And it sounds so poetic. Oh, that's great. I think some, some dude, Bob, somebody wrote a book about uh, moving to the we. I mean, it was so great. So like, oh, that's awesome. Well, how do we bring that down to the ground? Because to do that, if you were raised in mainstream U.S. society, this is a tricky move. And so one thing we have to do is really rigorously interrogate individual ownership. 
individual ownership because one of the hallmarks of whiteness is I have worked for everything I've got. I've pulled myself up by, by my bootstraps. I'm an honest, hardworking, corn-fed Iowan. You know, like all of that, which I grew up in Las Vegas, so I'm not an Iowan. But it's that idea of here's squeaky whiteness, and I've owned and earned everything. But it's actually systemically and structurally not true. And so I really need to get inside and extricate any ideas of individual ownership and really hold each one of them up to the light. Why do I have an individual? Why do I have my own house? Who said that? Why is that necessary? How come I'm not living in a more collective way? A second thing to interrogate is your individual success. Because have you really gotten here all by yourself? Did you really get the job you got all by yourself? We have to name the truth of that because it's just not true. It's just, and I would have white students in my classes like, I got here all by myself, nobody helped me. I was like, all right, let's break that down. So you, you, how did you get to campus this morning? Well, I took the bus. You know, I'm like, okay, who pays the taxes for that bus? Well, that's beside the point. I'm like, it's actually not. You know, like we have to, we have to look at the fact that we are inextricably linked. But, but the notions of whiteness and privilege and supremacy, they're so convenient in their application of when I've needed other people and when it's been all me. And typically it's just the argument of all me, even though I've gotten here only because I live in relationship to other people. A third thing to interrogate in this, you know, I to we is to look at individual consequences. I'm not hurting anybody but myself or what I do has no effect on anyone. It has it has a huge, massive effect on each other. We live in relationship. It is a web of life. And so as I work to remake the notions that this society proffers through the lens of race and particularly whiteness of individuality in the ways I mentioned, ownership, success, and consequences, as I start to uproot that, I actually create a space where I can begin to heal racial oppression and live in more racially just ways. I start to spend my money differently. I start to work more collaboratively and collectively. And I actually stop before I do something because I consider the consequences to people I don't even know. Right? Individual ownership, individual success, individual consequences. So very quickly, and I'm sorry this is quick, but I do want you to check because I've been talking too long. In what concrete ways can you move from the I to the we in the way and how you live your life? Very quickly, just think of one thing that you can do, one concrete thing you can do to move from however you embody I to a we. And many communities already do the, a lot of we, and some communities don't do any we. And so just no matter what your racial identity is, there's probably an edge in here somewhere. So very quickly with the neighbor you talked with this uh, earlier today in this talk, how can you move from I to we? Just super quickly, one idea, just one idea even.
start to wrap up, start to wrap up. Pause, please. Pause, and let's come back. So the topic, just in case you're like, where's, I I forgot where we're going with this. The topic is um, living or engaging in racial justice work in a lived way. And four really important things help white people, but certainly to some extent also are very useful for Native people and people of color to do that. Number one is to have an unapologetic moral compass that arcs toward justice, toward wisdom, toward love, toward compassion. Number two is to move from this ruggedly individualistic society and framing of solutions to a much more collective framing, a much more collective framing. And you can argue, or I knew socialism and communism would come into this, but I actually arc toward the natural world, and that's how we operate. That's just what's going on here. And so we would be wise to surrender to the science and act like people who are part of this natural world in much the same way that other animals and other beings are part of this natural world. A third element is an amend. So the third aspect of whiteness that gets in the way of white folks dismantling race, racism, and whiteness, salute, is entitlement. And it shows up on the left with phrases like share power and philanthropic charity. And these sound good to some people, but sharing power underneath it It still reinforces racism and whiteness by positioning white people as the ones who are doing the sharing and thus controlling the distribution of power and resources. A phrase I sometimes hear is like, we need to make room at the table for more people of color and Native people leadership. But the vision I have is white people's like, well, I've taken up this much. Let me just scoot over and I'll make a little room for you. But what actually needs to happen is sometimes you have to get up and leave the table. You actually sometimes have to get up and leave the table. And before, you, before somebody twists that into, I hate white people, I actually don't. Like, I'm pasty white. I'm really white. And so I don't hate myself and I don't hate white people. I'm just thinking about strategy and structure. I'm thinking about power and privilege and resources. I'm thinking how these systems have operated. And making room at the table is not racial justice. Leaving the table sometimes, ceding power is justice. And I'll talk more about that when we look at vision in just a moment. And similarly, when we see white people doing charitable works, white people are still driving the narrative of what that charity is and thus keeping a white frame on the work, on its priorities, on the metrics you use to measure its success. And neither of those approaches have yielded racial justice. And so what will? What will is this third point, amends. Many people in my life are in recovery, and what I've learned from them is that an amend is about setting something right not just apologizing for it, right? I think A, the Latin A means two, and mend is mend, mend. I don't know what the Latin mending business is, but it's just amen, to mend, to mend. And so that's, that's not an apology because it goes further than an apology. And the mend says, here's what I did, and I'm going to be honest with you about what happened. Here's how I think it might have harmed you, and I'm very open to hearing more about this from you. I definitely want to hear from you about that. And here's what I will do to make it right. And, and not to make you be my teacher. I'm trying to take responsibility, but I also know that there's things that I've missed. So if there's anything else I can do to set this right 
and support healing, I will do it. And this process is not out of guilt and shame because there's liberation in this for everybody. White people who are burdened by angst, if you want a way out, it's not to turn and run the other way. It's to go into this and make amends. When you lie and you know it, if you have no emotional intelligence or interpersonal skills, you often have to bolster the first lie with more lies. Did you eat the cookie? No. Really? It was Greg. He was just here. Greg's at work today, and you have crumbs all over your face. I cleaned Greg's mess up with my mouth. You know, like, I mean, it just, it gets weird. You're right, like, that didn't happen. You know, I know you're lying to me, and blah. And so the result is deep mistrust, obviously. But the result is also the way it makes the liar feel. You're even more isolated, more disconnected. You've done even more harm, and you get in this spinning cycle. And as this continues, it becomes even harder and harder to clean it up. And at some point, the feelings are so hard, you simply deny them and that anything ever happened. And if you can't get away from the people who keep reminding you you've lied, you seek to destroy them so that the message ends, right? The reminder goes away. And so, like the person who ate the cookie, if you happen to be a nation who's enacted colonization, genocide, slavery, Chinese Exclusion Act, mass deportation of U.S. citizens of Mexican descent, Japanese internment camps, and you have no emotional intelligence and no interpersonal skills to clean up, you lie. And you have to keep lying and lying and lying bigger each time. And under the lies of whiteness that cannot own and amend its harm, we see TV rewriting stories. History book gets revised. Curriculum gets balanced. And attempts to drive whole departments out of our universities are put forth as law in some states so as to just stop the reminder. I don't want to be told what I've done. And it's an awful cycle. It leaves people and it leaves nations in pain deeply divided, and ultimately unable to function or govern. And this is the legacy of whiteness, and it's ahistoricity. It's dishonesty. It's deep ignorance, and profoundly being ignorance is profoundly responsible for how we got here. But there's another way. It seems harder, but it's not. It just takes the moral compass, and it takes courage drawn from relations and connections, and it takes a willingness to speak the truth. So for, in terms of colonization and genocide, Dr. Waziatawin wrote a book, um, uh, she's Dakota, about what, what does justice look like. And she says, you know, give the land back. And most white readers are like, what? You know, I can't do that. And she's like, I know, I know, you're freaking out. Don't, go, don't get all upset. But there's 11 million acres of state parks in the state of Minnesota. Give that back. You took it under duplicitous circumstances. Return what you've stolen. And so I appreciate that you're honoring the Ho-Chunk Nation, but I'm, I hope, I trust that this conference is giving some of its monies to that nation, and I hope this conference center is actually returning some of the profits to the First Nation on whose land they are making profit from, right? And so... And so it's not about guilt and shame. It's about setting something right. It's about reparations for communities of African descent and African Americans. It's about wiping the Puerto Rican dead. It's about Mexican repatriation for Latinx. Because in the 20th century, over a million U.S. citizens of Mexican descent were deported. It's about deeper reparations for Japanese internment and the Chinese Exclusion Act. And what does this do for white people? Because it feels like, oh, I'm so guilty. No, it actually allows us to be the nation that our best documents and our deepest hopes say we are. This is freedom. This is freedom. It will finally be an honest reckoning with Native people and people of color, and it will deeply benefit the lives of Native people and people of color, obviously, but, but also white folks who feel lost, who are overwhelmed and consumed by the guilt. We have to do this differently. Otherwise, what happens to a dream deferred? Does it explode? Right? It might. 
It might. My fourth and last point is that we need a vision. We need a vision. I recently read Naomi Klein's No is Not Enough. It's a good book. Now, I appreciated it for its addition to the chorus of folks calling for a vision. And her premise is that resistance is absolutely necessary, but that mere resistance is not hopeful and vibrant enough to sustain the people doing it, nor is it compelling enough to get folks from disparate points of view to join a broader collective movement. Instead, we have to offer something better something that's not just a tinkering of the old, but a reimagining of our ways of being, particularly those that have been driven by race, racism, and whiteness. The movement for black lives, Standing Rock, and what Naomi describes as a leap, leap doctrine, L-E-A-P doctrine, the framers of that, all have a better vision that's hopeful, vibrant, compelling, powerful, and in so many ways able to speak to our deepest needs. And that is because of the authenticity and humanity of these visions, the intersectionality of these visions, the concrete actions that arise from them. The people articulating these points of view are not offering mere hope. They are giving us reminders of our best selves when we dream. And who are we if not dreamers? We're such a young species, and yet we've done so much, beautiful and horrific, right? We've done so much. And so in that light, is peace really so far-fetched? Are we so down, so exhausted, so furious that we can't imagine anything else? Racial justice and the dismantling of whiteness is not a zero-sum game. We all win when we let ourselves step outside of the really pernicious specter of race, racism and whiteness, and we can. It's just going to take a heavier lift. It's going to take deeper relationships and more truth. And more importantly, siloed identity politics. If we get into that, we will not be able to get there precisely because of their limitations. We need an intersectional lens, but there's a caution. For example, many white feminists have used their understanding of intersectionality as an excuse not to do the work around white privilege and white supremacy, as have white queer folks, white working class folks, and so on, because they're too focused on gender. That is not intersectionality. It's identity politics at its worst. What I'm talking about in terms of intersectionality is the deep understanding that white supremacy in its current iteration uses violent masculinity and Christian hegemony in the form of Jewish oppression as its weaponized face. Why else are white male shooters called lone wolves and brown men called terrorists? To identify white men... To identify white men who are mass murderers as terrorists would threaten the very core of toxic, violent masculinity and its ability to so neatly be used as a tool of white supremacy. So if we're truly going to challenge the white supremacists in our midst, there's no way to do that without dismantling structures of patriarchy, misogyny, trans oppression, and gender injustice altogether. They go hand in hand. And so if you're white and cisgender male in this room, you're like, oh, that's a lot, you know. And I'm like, you got that, brother. You are right about that. That is a lot. It means we love you, we need you, and you've got a lot of work to do. And we will hold you and scoot you along and give you lots of caffeine as you do it. We absolutely would do that. So this vision, I, I, I know I've got to, I have to wrap up. It, may, it might be three more minutes. Our vision, number one, what are some strategies for this vision? To cede leadership spaces to women of color. I was at a climate justice conference uh, presenting up in Reykjavik, Reykjavik, Iceland, a while back, and I was talking about climate justice and the race, class, gender roots of climate uh, uh, disruption and climate change. And I had a white mid-30s professor uh, come up to me and say, I so agree with you. I mean, I took a women's studies course in my undergrad. I was like, that's amazing. You know, like that, that's a good start. And he said, but we just don't have time for it. And what I said back is I said, you know what, my friend, 
I think a better kind of articulation is that you don't think you have time for it. But there are lots of people who already have this lens firmly in place. And so maybe you're not the best person to be leading around this issue. And so with some of the big greens around climate justice, many of them are led by dominant group members. And I would suggest that your work around climate is deeply important, but you might not be the right ones to lead us out of this because the clock is ticking. Physics is not going to negotiate. It's not going to say, oh, you seem to be having trouble across lines of race and gender, so I'll wait. Like, that's not what's happening around climate change. And so what we need to do is not just share power. We need to cede leadership spaces to women of color, queer women of color, you know, multifaceted women of color who have a complex understanding. And we need to place the needs and realities of the most vulnerable people at the center of our work. I'm always struck by, I do a lot of work in Seattle. There's, they have the highest per capita population of people who are experiencing homelessness in Seattle than anywhere in the country. And it is a profoundly wealthy city. And one of the things that strikes me is how much we blame people experiencing homelessness for their condition of homelessness. It is jaw-dropping that in pseudo-progressive liberal spaces, there is so much animosity, so much targeting, and so much angst to people who are experiencing homelessness as if somehow they thought, well, I could go to law school, I could have this, you know, corporate job, or I could be experiencing this. Like, we treat it as if it was a choice, as if it was, you know, because of some pathological problem with people experiencing homelessness. And in doing so, we refuse to look at systems and structures in the city of Seattle, for example, that have led to extraordinary amounts of homelessness. Or sometimes you say, well, homeless people, you know, uh, people who are experiencing homelessness leave trash everywhere, blah, blah, blah. I was like, have you ever been to a college campus on a Sunday morning, right? Like, if you're going to be upset about that, you better get your police and your all of your restrictions on frat row and see what happens on those college campuses. If Trash is your concern, but really it's just cover for the dehumanizing ways that we treat people who are experiencing homelessness. And so if, if we've got people who are making policy around housing and people experiencing homelessness who have never for a day in their life experiencing that, they at least might want to get some perspective from people who have. They at least might want to stop demonizing and vilifying and say, let me learn a little bit about this because I might not know everything that I need to know. And so my hope is that Seattle and other cities where that's happening, they actually stop making experiencing homelessness the crime and instead look at housing policies and property tax escalations and other systems and structures as the criminal element here. So all of this might seem impossible, but that's why it's last on the list, right? A compass in the direction of justice, wisdom, love, and compassion combined with the truth that we are in this together, but trust with amends that really help us heal and repair this damage, that allows us to dream, that allows us to hold this vision, that allows us to say in our lifetime we are not going to kick the can of race, racism, and whiteness down the road. We are going to stop it here. And it has never been for lack of trying of Native people and people of color. It has always been for the white liberals on the sidelines, wringing our hands, feeling bad, sending our $30 to the ACLU and the NAACP, but not putting our bodies in the places where they need to be. And so if we're going to do this work well, shared commitment means shared risk. 
And so if you happen to be in the political sector in this room and your choices are more about protecting your job than they are about protecting the people who voted you into office, then you might need to have a deep rethink about those priorities because that scale of priority is actually not going to achieve racial justice. When my self-interest are placed in front of the collective, just by default, we can't get there. And I know that in this time that I've stood up here in the hour, I've pissed a lot of people off. And that's okay because you can be really mad about it. It doesn't mean I'm wrong. It doesn't mean I'm wrong. You can just be mad about it. You can be mad about it. But instead of responding to our commitment to racial justice with, I don't like what you said because it upset me, I need you to respond with an equally powerful and equally substantial framing of how racism will help this society get to liberation? How will structures of oppression help us achieve our goals as a democratic republic? And if you can't prove that to me, then we all just need to get on board with racial justice in its most passionate, most committed, most loving, most powerful way, because the time is now. The time is now. Thank you very much. All right. That'll do it. That's, that, <laughs> that brings us to the end of this conference. Um, before I send you on your way, I just want to do a quick reminder that if you are staying for an institute, the best way to know where to go next is by looking at your name tag. Uh, it's on there. If you are not staying for an institute, go ahead and give your name tags to the folks in the back. And thank you so much for being here.